Sound Network. Hosted by Caleb Jackson Dulles and Evan Phillips. We hope you enjoy the show wherever you are in the world time zones. Remember, be safe, be vigilant, and keep listening. So that's your health check. You've been sufficiently vaxxed and vetted. Vaxxed and red pilled. Some lines are uh, moving forward here. Yeah, you're good now. Yeah, the Astasi has you on report. You are moving forward. Is this going to be uh, just audio? Yes, sir. Yeah. Oh, my God, all the prep that I did. <laughs> no, take off all your clothes. <laughs> well, I got to put them back on. All for not. <laughs> all right. Well, Jeez, all this changes everything. You're just as God made you, sir. Well, how are you today, Jack? Let's see. Let me get the uh, volume up. Jack, do you have headphones around? Yeah. That might make it better. Like we're in the freaking studio. <laughs> High pro. Professionalism. That's that's us. That's, that's what you're all about. We're professionals here. <laughs> we all know what we're doing. Now, Jack, we can't have any of this frivolous banter because we have okay. a two-hour limited limit. They start charging after two hours. You know, this stuff used to all be free, but oh, two hours. Okay. Yeah. I uh, might have to no. pee. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I got a jar yeah. here. I got a jar here. I know you do. You probably have several. If it gets really good, we'll pony up the money, I guess. If we're really breaking through. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Only only quality content after two hours. Well, that's, right. yeah, okay. Otherwise, we're passing the buck to you, buddy. All right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, now I think we have everything in order here. Uh, so some baseline things to cover. We should probably mention full disclosure that I've known Jack for something around 20 years. Uh, I've had a long music relationship, playing improvised music, and uh, Jack was even my landlord for a number of years at the um, notorious Spring Garden House in Philadelphia. And... Um, Jack has more recently, uh, well, you wrote a book that was about improvised music, the free musics. Uh, that was one book. And then kind of more recently, uh, you started this book in 2019 and was published this year or was it last year? Shaky Ground. Uh, last year. Last year. Yep. Uh, Self-published, covering some completely different subject matter um kind of coming well maybe we should talk a little bit about where the book started because it initially was a project that you privately wrote going into some of your own self-analysis psychologically which you submitted to just close friends right in the 90s uh yeah mid 90s so are you recording this now for the uh for the thing yeah Oh, okay. This is official. Well, keep in mind, we always edit it, you know, if you say anything really hateful, since you're <laughs> such a hate monger, um, we'll edit it out. <laughs> um, but no, just, it's, yeah, we, we, we edit it. Okay, well, everything I had lined up to say is pretty hateful, so, you know, <laughs> I mean, let's just stop right here. <laughs> okay. 
uh, well, yeah. So uh, coming out of this seething hatred of the '90s, uh, you returned to the project in 2019, right? And this was now kind of extending in it into a new direction. Well, I think I l let me uh, explain it because okay, yeah. I got I got some uh, private information. All right. I mean, I'm the person in charge of those books, so uh, I should give more, uh, the most accurate um, uh, information about it. So uh, lay it down. Um, so I wrote um, the free musics, which is free improvisation, free jazz, um, and finished that in uh, 2016, published it the beginning of 2017. And uh, it was a somewhat uh, traditional researched uh, book. I had to learn quite a bit about jazz and uh, look deeply into um, the history and um, especially from the, uh, from the aspect of musicians who are um, actually engaged in playing. Uh, what uh, what motivates musicians uh, playing this kind of music, and um, what is their relationship really to the world, um, earning money and uh, getting response, what kind of response they expect, and so on and so forth. So it was, I would say, um, uh, of historical and sociological interest uh, but because I was involved in the these musics myself, uh, have been uh, since '79. Uh, um, I um, uh, it was an unusual book, and was respected as uh, as such a book written by a musician who was um, really uh, seriously engaged with the music. So then. For a couple of years, I was searching around for another book to write, and uh, did did quite a bit of stuff. But um, in the spring of, um, you know, let's see, it was February 2020. I um, uh, turned to a uh, a book that I had self-published, that is uh, xeroxed and bound myself. Um, in 1994, which was an edited version, an expanded version of a small portion of notes that I started writing um, in 1992. Um, and these were notes that uh, were similar in a way to what I was writing in uh, uh, for the first time in 1974, so 20 years earlier. By the way, I should say I was born in 1942, so uh, I'm 80 years old now, and that'll give some perspective on <clears throat> uh, where I'm at you know, on that timeline. Uh, mm -hmm. Anyway, uh, I thought I'd just, you know, like, okay, I had put out a pretty normal book. I was going to, so why not, uh, why not edit this uh journal from uh, 25 years earlier and uh, put that out. So I started working on that. And then in 
uh, June, uh, end of May and June, uh, the uh, George Floyd um, uh, demonstrations and riots occurred. And I made a comment on Facebook that um, was an observation and a suggestion of what might be going on. And I was uh, really slammed by uh, responses. And um, this really hit me in the gut because I had always thought of myself as someplace on the left. And um, I think it was my comfort zone, which uh, most people have. They have a notion of whether politics is and how that relates to other people they know. Maybe other people are one, you know, uh, 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 somewhat different, but most of our friends are somewhere in that area. So up until then, I had not really been, I was politically active in the uh, 69 to 72, very intensely active and had a deep effect on my life. Changed my life actually in terms of, um, I had an academic career. I was on a tenure track uh, position at Temple University teaching European history. And uh, I was in a PhD program, I dropped out of that. And um, um, the, uh, the political side collapsed, that's a long story. Um, and uh, I was really bereft for several, for uh, several years and finally got into music in 79. And that's what I was really doing from then until uh, 2020. But all that time, I assumed that I was still, uh, uh, still on the left in that, uh, and, and my understanding of the left was that it had, there were a range of opinions, um, and I was often critical of leftist organizations and publications and so on. But uh, to my mind, the left included uh, self-criticism. And so um, when I was hit, I realized uh, by these uh, criticisms, uh, it had effect on me that it really threw me off. It was really traumatic, I would say, uh, very hurt by this on uh, not only for losing my my uh, my comfort zone, my home home ground, uh, my which was is a kind of relationship to the world, to the wider world, uh, but also because um, I think I had this um, <clears throat> self image of myself uh, as a uh, respected old man who was uh, the rest of my life, I would just, you know, obscure but respected and that, that kind of thing. And- uh, The elder statesman. Yeah. And so, um, and I was respected and all of a sudden I'm not respected. And on top of that, um, I didn't get any support from uh, other musicians. Many musicians just joined in on the, in the dog pile. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, so uh, I was really at a loss and then uh, uh, was flailing about, didn't quite know what to do, losing a lot of sleep. Um, and 
I asked uh, my friend Evan Lipson, you might know him. Um, he, um, it's a little too well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I can smell it right now. <laughs> so he, he suggested that I look at Twitter for uh, uh, sources of uh, a source for people who might uh, have some disagreement with uh, um, wokeness and um, the uh, the response, uh, what was going on that summer. So I did that, and uh, that led me to really change what I had planned to do in the book. And I spent the next um, two two years, more than two years, uh, uh, really, uh, as I found out later, picking up on criticisms that I already had. But the funny thing about um, the funny thing about a, a traumatic uh, a, a, um, loss that occurs when you're when you're hit by something is you sort of forget uh, your 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 mind is wiped out of the fact that you were already uh, that I was already critical um, mm -hmm. of the left. I just thought that that was just part of the left. And here I was being mm -hmm. uh, abandoned and called a fascist and so on. So anyway, uh, the book project changed tremendously because I just started writing um, about what I was uh, coming up with. And it was a critique of wokeness, but also uh, engaged with um, uh, my own uh, subjectivity. Because I, mm -hmm. I could not uh, um, I could not and didn't want to shift into such an objective mood when I was uh, my own feelings were so much involved. Uh, so this is um, uh, basically what what occurred, and I can um, elaborate a little bit more on my approach to to writing now from that but um that mm -hmm. and just to be clear what you uh the, the name of that book was uh shaky ground the original right. book that i wrote the uh, the journal was shaky ground and this has the same name but there's just tons of of writing that i did at that time and uh i'm going over now which um i'm putting into which I've also edited and which I'm putting mm -hmm. into the next uh, volume and as many volumes as I can put out in the years ahead of me. <laughs> many, the many years ahead. And to clarify the shorthand term of wokeness uh, or what might be better called uh, the false awakening, uh, uh, you define this as um, mili militant identity politics, correct? Um, yeah. Now there's uh, there's a lot of problems using this word. I've a number of people have told me that um, uh, the people who are uh, in agreement with uh, certain principles, woke principles, uh, don't like to use the word, um, and they don't agree with the use of the word because it is. Uh, um, 
uh, it is uh, uh, an antagonistic. Yeah, and, it's naming, uh, naming power. Well, it is used uh, by antagonists. It is a um, it is a, a smear used as a smear word, and I recognize that. Um, and uh, I was writing uh, writing something about this this morning uh, about the this this poses a dilemma uh, because uh, there's no reason to uh, engage in, uh, in, in a struggle with woke people um, mm -hmm. and uh, to just further the, uh, the polarization. Uh, so I tried to make clear in the book what I would make even clearer now that when I use the word wokeness, I'm talking about a phenomenon, and like any phenomenal uh, phenomena, we can we can attempt to describe it, try and understand what motivates it. Um, it's um, and I talk in the book uh, in shaky ground about what I call its strengths, and mm -hmm. this is an objective, an attempt to be uh, um, objective about it. Uh, but of course. Um, uh, this is really uh, difficult because uh, I do have a political I do have a political opinion, but it means separating my my uh, political feeling from my political judgment. And uh, uh, so anyway, I wrote something about this this morning um, and about how um, uh, this I was reading a uh, a guy who was talking about uh, he's a he's a British uh, uh, fiction writer um, uh, Jacobson Howard Jacobson he was writing about uh, Kundera's uh, the book of laughter and forgetting and um, he said he wouldn't use the word woke because it was poison tipped. Um, mm -hmm. Agreed. And and uh, so here's what I wrote this morning about this. Um, the, the woke people who agree with woke beliefs don't use it either. And mm -hmm. uh, their reason is is really the triumph of the therapeutic. It hurts to be accused and they fear that the accusation might have some truth to it that would be hurtful for them to see. So they're caught in a bind. Um, and Jacobson, in another context, he talks about longing for a unitary meaning um, that turns into a cult or ideology. And he's referring here to um, uh, communism in uh, the Czech, in Czechoslovakia. Um, and so, the point of, from the point of view of the woke, these are good people responding to wrong as anyone would do. So they don't understand how they're, how they're doing anything wrong. And uh, mm -hmm. I would like to uh, approach them a way that uh, it is not an accusation. Um, so let me read what I wrote here. Um, between the dual erasure uh, of, you know, critics and, you know, uh, um, and people who are woke, um, who agree with wokeness. Between the dual erasure, wokeness disappears, making it even more powerful on both sides, accepted because words about it cannot be uttered. As hostility 
to this cultish ideology is canceled to protect the fragility of the woke, wokeness as a phenomenon gets the last laugh. My answer to this is to treat it as an observer, to find its character as we can any phenomenon. Its political use is to provide an escape route for adherents, to recognize the capacity of the woke to enlighten themselves. This is the only way for them to preserve their self-respect, to understand that indeed their motives are honorable, only naive about what they were getting into or fearful of the consequences if they didn't go along, but that is no crime. So um, what I was saying before about my own subjective engagement in this uh, leads to the next. Uh, mm -hmm. This is a dilemma for me as well, for I despise wokeness, which I first saw appear among fellow activists in 1968, beating their breasts over male chauvinism and white skin privilege. But I have not felt hostile toward the actual people, especially the mass of liberal middle class. My feelings are rather what I find alongside my reasoned objections, the pain of being attacked and accused of being an oppressor when there's no reason to think that I am one. I mean, I'm talking about uh, uh, the assumption uh, that uh, white males, especially white heterosexual males, are, uh, you know, uh, uh, the enemy. Are, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's a dehumanization uh, of a large category of people. Mm -hmm. um, yet I find it despicable for the woke to defend themselves by acting out of hurt feelings. If I, if I feel that despicable, then that, that direction is blocked for me as well. So um, I go on to say, uh, our current political environment encourages polarization when it tells us to stand up for ourselves and respond to injustice done to us. It is that environment that must be seen through and distrusted, but that is a tall order, for to do that lets the other off the hook. They get away with murder. The error here is to defend hurt feeling by confusing it with the objectivity of justice, which perpetuates this strife because the feeling of injustice and the reality of it is on both sides. That is, it is not unjust to attack wokeness, but no matter how much the woke defend it, they are not their politics any more than we are. So uh, this is this brings in the whole uh, shift from the past um, when uh, certainly when I grew up, uh, people understood that their that your politics was not yourself, that this was, mm -hmm. you know, a view that you held. Um, um, so anyway, um, to escape the pain of this injustice, I would have to do the same as I ask of the woke, to overcome my feelings and not act them out. Or better, it is to have compassion for myself, which gets underneath the feeling and does not deny it. To view this objectively, everyone in this circle of mutual condemnation is suffering from a subjectivity that was not present in politics previously. There's no way back to that. What is needed is to transform together to another level. What this might look like, that is, um, we know that every present situation dissolves uh, in some way into the future. And uh, so we can imagine what that would look like. And if we can imagine it uh, in a 
in a positive way, then we can have some influence on that. Um, so what this might look like is that some will leave the circle, tempting the others to drift away. Emotions on both sides weaken. Wokeness loses its power and becomes a thing even the woke institutions are embarrassed about, and the attackers lose their target. Our thinking then is, what will the next thing be, and how will we begin shaping it? So, so do you see a lot of this as, like the current situation, as almost a, a reactionary effort against the classical tradition of objectivity towards, uh, I mean, the post-structuralist uh, effort towards like a, a the swinging the pendulum in the opposite direction towards full subjectivity. Uh, I mean, is this what you're sort of arguing for? Um, maybe not a balance, but but some combination of the two uh, to get to something that's that's closer to the truth. Yeah, I would I would say uh, yeah, it is a kind of a balance, but the rebalance is going to have to be different and hopefully mm -hmm. better. Uh, now, um, uh, I should say that all my writing is very much historical. Um, I mean, that has been my viewpoint since uh, I, I guess, um, you know, uh, late years in high school, I got, I got into history, European history, especially. And mm -hmm. uh, so I always want to uh, pin things down to uh, when is this happening? I, I open a book and the first thing I see want to see is when was it published? And mm -hmm. uh, I can open up a book in the middle and very often I can say pretty much when that book was written because of people, people write um, in, their, in their present environment language expressions and certainly ideas so mm -hmm. anyway uh right now i've uh been working on the uh the issue of the therapy what i call the therapeutic uh ethos uh it's also it was first called the therapeutic state uh this was 1962 um but it reaches back in time and it is something that nobody at the time had any notion of where it was going. But it's, uh, I look at it as not subjectivity, but a form of subjectivity, um, which uh, uh, is unable to, which feels the superiority of emotion over reason, that, mm -hmm. that this is the next stage of, of enlightenment. To be enlightened is to distrust your, the rational mind, uh, to distrust objectivity and um, uh, move on to where things are really at, which is um, how we feel as the kind of um, uh, uh, base, the very base where we, we always return from uh, reality to this base of feeling. However, uh, this base of feeling is, um, um, well, of course, it, it, you know, what it rules out is uh, the perception of the senses, first of all. 
In other words, mm-hmm. you uh, you walk down the street. I know I walk down the street in Philadelphia and I see black people and I very often will make some joke or, you know, there'll be some, very often there's something, uh, especially depending on how they're walking or what they're doing, uh, some joke. And it is, uh, uh, I'll do this with other people as well. Now that is, um, that is reality of uh, my relationship to them. That is a part of the reality. Um, and, uh, but if I go to the categories of wokeness, uh, they completely deny that ex- experience. In other words, something which was originally supposed to bring us to authenticity of our experience actually has taken us far away from it. Uh, we don't really think, well, what is generally true of empirical reality? If you think first, uh, how do I feel about it? Then uh, you are um, you're vulnerable to all kinds of judgments that um, you really didn't come up with yourself. That are social judgments of the people around you. So uh, these ideas then then spread. So uh, this is something that uh, I was first aware of in the 50s when I read um, uh, David Reisman, um, what's the title of the book? Uh, famous book of David Reisman. He was one of three authors. I think Nathan Glazer was another. Mm, most, I, don't know. Yeah. Hmm? I don't know it. Yeah. Uh, okay, anyway, he talks about inner direction and other direction. And uh, right there, and this book was 1951, I think, um uh right there he is saying the way the path of the future is away from inner direction towards other direction inner directed person is a person the metaphor he uses he says they uh they have a an inner gyroscope um <laughs> they have uh, a sense of direction uh they have a subjectivity let shall we say that uh is does not come from the outside. It is uh, a moral direction, or it is a uh, um, it is something w- that withstands uh, pressures from the outside. And uh, oh, uh, uh, continue. I, I just uh, recognized the passage in the book where you. It's the lonely crowd. Lonely crowd. The lonely yeah. crowd. Right. Right. Um, and uh, the book has been criticized in many ways, but. Uh, uh, I think this was the first book that laid out uh, the situation of of where America was headed. Um, other direction is where you take your cues from other people. So uh, that's where popularity was headed and where, um, of course, he didn't see it at the time where we are, we, where we are today. Uh, consequences of this um, a much greater social uh, socialization by peers. Um, the inner directed person was much more uh, receptive to um, receiving uh, uh, receiving instructions and moral ideas from the parents. It was a stronger. It was a more parent uh, family oriented uh, ethic. Uh, other direction is uh, um, 
where the family has uh, broken down somewhat, the family authority has broken down, especially the father's authority, and uh, you are um, relying on the people around you from whom you need approval. So, uh, and I write about this in the in my journal um, from 25 years ago. Um, the whole question of where we get this need, uh, the need to be approved, which is once uh, you are in a world of the need for approval, it's really hard to notice it, just like anything else. Uh, a, a person who was brought up in the 40s and 50s is very likely to notice what is different. And uh, of course, many people just go along and well, now here we are now and so on. But um, um, especially with my historical interest, um, I uh, can revisit the kind of consciousness that I had in the past uh, from which I am not uh, divorced really. Uh, mm -hmm. And this brings up the whole question of uh, how uh, what is it in us that persists over time? Um, how do we, uh, it's like I ask uh, when I'm, uh, I've, I've uh, as, as you know, I'm on tour sometimes I'm, uh, uh, we're doing uh, workshops with music students. And uh, I remember asking once, uh, can you imagine yourself? And here they are, you know, maybe, 19, 20 years old, can you imagine yourself uh, 40 years from now and what your music will be at that time? You will be connected with the music that you're doing now, but it will evolve. And I think this is something that uh, in our present-minded uh, world, it's, it's very difficult for people to project their lives uh, forward and when they are forward to project them backwards to see any kind of uh, continuity there um, from, you know, like, um, because we're all dissolved into the present, I think is the way, uh, is what happens. And an older person, uh, as, uh, and I knew back then that I was, <laughs> I was inner directed uh, <laughs> and was resisting other direction. Um, and so, in a way, I was I was a conservative, in that sense, and yet, uh, in from from the moment that I read uh, the Communist Manifesto in high school class, uh, I thought of myself as some kind of Marxist, and uh, so the Marxists were back then thinking that they were the most advanced uh, people of the world, and here I was, uh, you know. Um, uh, a conservative and not not really fighting my conservatism either. So uh, I think like most people, we have uh, different components of our consciousness. And uh, um, it, it, it can be too upsetting to bring them together and to have them talk to each other. Um, mm -hmm. And it puts us into a kind of a dilemma when we're doing one kind of job, uh, uh, well, this uh, sociologist I'm reading now, writing in 73, he's uh, talking about um, 
technological production as opposed to uh, and and the kind of mind that you have there and here the worker uh, the factory worker goes home and he has a completely different world there he doesn't bring his work home with him and uh, uh, I think that um, uh, the the kind of subjectivity that exists now um, uh, helps people avoid uh, confronting these different areas of consciousness. In other words, you can they they come into contradiction, and you don't want to be in contradiction, so you ignore it. It's really a painful thing to start putting these things together, but uh, if you do, and you have compassion for yourself being, you know, this is just what it is to be a human being in a modern world, is to have these, to be in conflict with yourself. If you can, you know, approach yourself in that way, uh, then you will uh, be able to to work these things out and not, um, and present them as simply, uh, yeah, this is a problem. This is a dilemma. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you use an interesting analogy in the book. There's one particularly wild thought I really like. Um, I could just pull it up here and read it. Uh, where you're talking about this kind of situation of seemingly contradictory elements arising in music making, and how rather than experiencing that as a, a certain uh, pain of of being pulled apart, that there's there's really like an intense enjoyment. But you say. Uh, uh, yet they are still necessary as a guide for when we find something outside our usual repertoire of music making, like evidence against our earlier conclusions. The idealization in the back of our minds as a possibility reminds us that our music theory or judgment can be bent, modified, or expanded in an unexpected direction. It can encompass more. We can even jump ship 180 degrees in the opposite direction, at least check it out to see what might be useful there, like a leftist looking at, quote, right-wing misinformation, unquote. That possibility is our enlightenment and enjoyment. Oh, very well said. I would. <laughs> <laughs> <Not bad. laughs> I remind you of that time uh, uh, you and I were uh, performing in, uh, in a bookstore in Portland, Oregon, and mm-hmm. uh, I had um, copies of the book with me. This was, I was supposed to talk about it a little bit, you know, a bookstore. And uh, so um, uh, you said, well, why don't you uh, read a little bit of it? Um, And uh, I think maybe you opened it just, it was sort of at random, you opened it and I read this thing and I was in tears. And I have, I keep trying to understand this, you know, it's, uh, it was, um, it was like somebody else had written this, and I was uh, I was appreciating it as writing and appreciating the insights. I was I was the reader, but of course this is complicated because I was also the person who had thought these things and written them. So you're trapped between thinking, oh well, this is you know it's just your ego here that is you're <laughs> flattering you, uh, mm-hmm. but it. Uh, uh, that kind of double take of uh, what we do, because we're not, 
when it comes right down to it, we're not really supposed to like what we do. Mm -hmm. We're not supposed to like ourselves. You know, I mean, this is all of a sudden that's narcissism. That's ego. Mm -hmm. You know, oh, oh, yeah, you're just boosting yourself. But um, but what we miss is that um, that um, that appreciation of ourselves from from an outside that we also inhabit. Uh, and maybe nobody else or very few people do. We don't have to say, oh, because I like this, it must be good. Now, that's when you get into trying to objectify something um, uh, that you do by putting uh, a, um, a, a standard, uh, whatever, a social judgment, because something that is good, that's a social judgment. That's the reason I talk a lot about uh, how um, the problem of saying we're making good music. Um, mm -hmm. uh, you're caught between, um, I mean, that's advertising, you know, that's, that's promotion right. and you don't want to promote it, promote it. Uh, so there has, and if you say, oh, well, it sounds good to me, then you're saying that, well, nobody else would like this. Uh, <laughs> it's just, it's just me. Like, right. one, like, uh, I told a girlfriend once, um, uh, who was, you know, very much doubting her own attractiveness. I said, I said um, you know, you're really beautiful to me. And she said, mm -hmm. well, that's fine if you leave off to me. <laughs> yeah, but you can't say that to a woman. <laughs> yeah, well, I've, I've learned since then. <laughs> uh, so anyway, um, that was uh, a surprise uh, moment in that bookstore and mm -hmm. um uh but it doesn't uh feed back in terms of uh any kind of um uh, uh safety you know like the thing about approving of what you do has to be in this category where it doesn't make you feel like uh oh now i'm I'm uh, now I'm safe. Now I can just go ahead. Boy, that was so hard before when I didn't trust, didn't believe in myself. Now I believe in myself. I can just, you know, basically that is telling you that you don't. Uh, that's what happens with uh, uh, writers. Their first book is just so fan. Some writers, their their mm -hmm. first, you know, litter, those fiction writers, uh, their first thing is just so successful and. Uh, they just, you know, like, wow, I just never could have done it, you know, and never could have believed mm -hmm. it. And then uh, every book after that, they're trying to reach that level. Um, so uh, I was reading how uh, Kerouac, uh, his girlfriend at the time, you know, he was struggling so hard to be the American, the great American novelist, just like Mailer uh, was. And uh, so he tried to get On the Road published. Uh, and everybody turned it down until this guy who was really uh, Malcolm Cowley, who was uh, really very friendly with uh, the Beats and wanted wanted their their stuff to get out. Uh, he was working for Viking Press, and he gave the okay. The book was uh, edited and and published. And when it came out, he and his girlfriend got the review in the Times, which was very favorable, and. Uh, uh, 
I forget what he said exactly, but the girlfriend said uh, that he was just miserable. <laughs> um, and uh, I think that was a, that showed what happened to him that, uh, and that was, that was, that was the, the first, the early experience of celebrity for that kind of, for that kind of work. Um, it, it was, yeah. he was, I've always told friends, uh, if somehow in, uh, you know, really an alternate universe, like some, some music that I had participated in ended up having a favorable review by NPR that they have the right to take a gun to my head. So <laughs> I, I, I can, I can sympathize with that. <laughs> well, he was just, you know, he didn't know what to do. He was such a, uh, um, totally introverted person who had this dream. The problem was he had this dream of, of being just what he became. And, mm -hmm. uh, but, but he was such an introvert. He, he had no idea that this would destroy him. So this is a case of, uh, of a dilemma of the, uh, of the person that, uh, you know, tragedy dilemma is tragedy. And uh, today's um, today's consciousness, the, the familiar con the the consciousness that the kind of subjectivity we have now um, is an attempt to just uh, do away with the possibility of of tragedy. Uh, because I mean, if you iron out, if you if you say there are no dilemmas, everything is resolved. I know what I believe. I know what I am. Blah blah blah. Then, um, um, you know, you're you're just going to walk blind out into the world, and you won't get that enjoyment of the world, which comes from just knowing how everything is divided, and uh, we're in the we're in the middle of that division all the time, and to place yourself in the middle of that of of that you know what is called problematic. Uh, rather than on, you know, the one who resolves it. Mm -hmm. I, I was reading this, uh, at lunch I was reading um, this book by uh, Max Frisch, who is a, a, uh, um, is a Swiss uh, novelist, maybe died in the 70s or so. Uh, and um, he's writing in a sketchbook, just a journal. And he was saying he had, uh, oh, he was, a playwright and novelist. And um, he was writing how one of his plays uh, was being uh, produced and there was this big audience. And he said, uh, well, it's very gratifying to see all these people, at least they're interested um, in something like this. Uh, but but he said, I know that they, they want, um, they're, just, they're just looking for a solution they want an answer, and then he uh, he quoted Ibsen, the playwright Ibsen, uh, late nineteenth century, who was you know very very popular um, playwright, and who said, uh, "I um, I have only questions, no answers. I'm only interested in the question, something like that." And mm -hmm. and and so uh, Frisch said, "Yeah, yeah, that's." That's what I'm doing. I'm um, I'm interested in the questions, and uh, 
you know, uh, people are pressing for answers and the questions are, take you much further than the, it's a kind of haste of politics. Politics is looking, looking, you know, the first thing you say something, well, then, well, what are your answers? What are, how are you going to solve this thing? And if you're not going to solve it, um, that, you know, that pragmatic approach, uh, then um, you're just really useless. So uh, <laughs> we understand doing the kind of music that we are, that we are absolutely useless to this culture. And mm -hmm. uh, so uh, that should prepare people for being useless in um, intellectually and, and in their, their musings as well. Yeah, well, it's like questioning, questioning something or questions are anathema to the effort of entertainment and marketing, right? Because it's, um, it's it, yeah, it's the opposite of giving giving you an answer or pulling you in a direction to sell something. It's, well, the marketing uh, it's, it's not it's, it's not easily uh, categorized as what you would call like uh, good music or good art or anything like that. Well, it really uh, follows the market follows what people want. I mean, very often in the book, I, I talk a lot about the uh, uh, the focus is the social order uh, and the social order institutions and uh, how um, whatever, uh, instead of thinking of them in terms of, uh, in conspiratorial terms of how they are uh, figuring things out and, and thinking through what to do to keep us down, uh, to keep capitalism going, all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, um, they are uh, really unconscious of the people who work for them, including the top people, are really uh, uh, deceived in thinking that they are conscious of what they're doing. They are going with the flow. But if they see something that is troubling. This, this is my response to the whole question of intention. If I say that um, the intention of the institutions is this or that, um, as I say often, to prevent another 60s, to prevent another outburst that is beyond the control of the social order that will force the social order to change, um, as we know it will change, you know, but the the current social order institutions are all trying to keep things, um, keep the status quo um, going. And they should. This is what they should, they should try to do, uh, if you think in terms of their logic. But if you talk in those terms, it sounds conspiratorial. But they really, um, our advantage over them is that they don't know what we're doing, and we can figure it out because we don't have any stake in, in uh, their, uh, their activities. But the, the, the way that I approach that is to say, if they see something that they instinctively know is going to cause trouble, they will find a way to either uh, uh, persuade it in their direction, that is to co-opt it, or to um, push it uh, far enough off the stage to prevent it from getting on stage where it can mm -hmm. attract, attract other people. So that is 
we can understand that as unconscious and not, you know, like just instinctual. If you are trying to keep your, your thing going, and that is your job as a bureaucrat, I'm, we're all talking here about bureaucracies. Um, um, the, first, the first thing that you do as a bureaucracy is to maintain it. And the second thing is to expand it. Just like capital is not about keeping capital. I mean, capital uh, is not about keeping things at the same level. It's always, if you don't, if you're not going ahead, if you're not expanding, if you're not getting, aiming for greater profit, you will, you'll start losing because you're competing with others who are doing the same thing. So academia uh, uh, pushes out. We want, we want more control over students. We want uh, uh, more students to be coming to the institutions. And so on, what can we do to bring this about? So we're going to have, you know, all kinds of fancy, uh, you know, rock climbing opportunities for <laughs> students and, and the cushiest. I mean, we're going to have people living like better than they do at home. And, you know, we're going to do all these things. It makes perfect sense. However, there is not a control. None of these institutions really can control where things are headed. So as we see that the job market for for uh, graduates uh, exceeds the cost of going to school, there's going to be more um, hesitation for people to enroll. And uh, that is something that, um, uh, you know, things expand and grow to the point where they crowd each other out. These are, you know, I mean, this is the story of the, the, um, the Fed, uh, today, you know, like, what are we going to do? Are we going to uh, allow the inf inflation rate to rise? In which case, the the uh, uh, the Biden administration will be in more trouble, and uh, uh, we've got to prevent things from exploding. So we'll do everything we possibly can, and that only digs the hole deeper and deeper and deeper. So uh, the f the feeling that one is in control is something that is um, what I say uh, in Shaky Ground, I talk about, instead of talking about class, I call it the caste class. And that means that to think in terms of class is uh, um, not only Marxist, but uh, not only falls into the Marxist uh, blind spot, uh, but also um, the blind spot of purely uh, economic uh, calculations. The, the fact is that people who are high educated, people who go to the university, and especially the, the, um, the better, the, the elite universities, they are brought up to uh, think of themselves as responsible for the world. And uh, this is a duty. You know, I mean, it was a duty that I was given as, you know, when I went off to college. Uh, I mean, my family, I was going to be, uh, uh, my father went to college, my mother did not. Of course, I was going to go to college. We were living in, uh, we were not that wealthy, but we were living in a, uh, a high income area, best high school, that kind of thing. Um, 
So uh, I was brought up with this and it enables me, it helps me to see uh, because I had to struggle uh, to, to escape that mentality, um, uh, helped me to see that this is part of upbringing and it's a, it's a moral charge upon certain people and mm-hmm. the uh, getting a college education, the best that you can, whatever sets you up as a professional and a manager. And that is what we call the professional manager, managerial class. Um, mm-hmm. But it, uh, it's, it, it's a cast. And uh, if you notice some of the dissident left today are people who have gone, somehow they got into these uh, high, uh, high level schools like Yale, and uh, they are the ones who were not trained to do that. They just wanted to move up and they, they had the minds, they had the, you know, uh, uh, the ability to get into these schools and they can see through it. But the people mm-hmm. who are, um, what do you call it, the luxury belief people, <laughs> as one of these guys uh, said, called it, um, people of luxury belief uh, who, um, you know, uh, uh, wokeness is a kind of, is a luxury belief for them. Um, and not for everybody, but, but for them, it's something that uh, is part of their upbringing. And it feels like radical, but it's really part of their feeling of, I am responsible for the world. Uh, now, this is a clear distinction uh, between, um, between the two major uh, groupings of society, the minority of uh, high educated who uh, are brought up with this, and the other people it's who are don't have that feeling. They feel like, okay, well, I get to vote. But they don't feel that they have this moral responsibility for um, uh, and capability and, and uh, you know, in their work to, um, to take charge, basically, and to direct what other people should be doing, to change other people into, to make people better than they are. And when you begin to see uh, how this works, you can see the how it how it um, how it evolved from uh, the progressives of the late 19th century through the progressives who uh, were in all of the New Deal agencies, and then the liberals of the 50s who thought, well, now everything's settled. We are we're in charge and uh, the people without it, pe- people just need more education. If they, you know, if we get the, the populace, if we get these people, these uneducated people uh, into, get them moving up, uh, they'll see things our way. Otherwise they're a threat. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, so I've been tracing this dynamic between these two, between the populace and um, the um, the high educated, shall I say, the high mm-hmm. educated progressives, and many of the populace uh, also have had uh, progressive ideas, but uh, the way they understand they understand these in terms of themselves, not doing good for others, 
whereas the high educated, because of this this sense of moral duty, uh, they they are they are working for the world is the way to put it. That's how that's mm -hmm. their feeling, and uh, so yes, they have to obey the laws that they set down, but they're uh, they're in a different position subjectively from the people who are on the receiving end of orders. Mm -hmm. So maybe you've already answered this, saying if it's maybe at the level of of feeling or their subjectivity, but how would you go about persuading uh, current liberals or believers, true believers of this ideology, uh, specifically within this caste class, as you describe it, um, how do you persuade them that there are seemingly virtuous efforts of resistance opposing what they perceive as being an oppressive authority, in fact, ends up further supporting the social order and an increasingly author authoritarian and censorious power elite? Uh, well, if they just put themselves in some different shoes, if they imagined that they were victims, I think that's the, the most radical thing that they could think that they are victims of um, the social order. They are being used, you know, the vast, you can certainly say that of the vast number of people in the NGOs and every everywhere, their, their, their subjectivity has been manipulated uh, to create um, a division in society. And um, uh, so they have to, they have to begin you know, uh, examining themselves and their own feelings um, to, uh, but I don't really have any program. Uh, if people uh, stumble on my writing or, you know, like how many people stumble on uh, the kind of music that we, we play? Occasionally, somebody walks mm -hmm. in and says, what's this? What's going on? Mm-hmm. Um, but as I say, uh, the social order has figured out um, how to deal, how to prevent another 60s. And uh, that is to, um, first of all, to adopt uh, outsider voices and to say, this is, this is good. We, we've got an outside and there are people right. who are, you know, doing... Uh, fringe fringe festivals, for instance. Now, what we do is not is not welcome in fringe festivals. And uh, if you ask anybody, well, well, why don't why don't you play at a fringe festival? Well, because we're uh, aren't isn't that the outside, you know? <laughs> but when you look at the lineup of fringe festivals, uh, uh, you you can see they're just just like everything else. <laughs> you know, they're not. There, there's nothing outside about them. Uh, they are um, entertainment uh, for people who think, want to feel that they're they have a broad um, uh, range of uh, of uh, musical taste. Oh yeah, I like you know people who say I like all kinds of music. Okay, well mm -hmm. try this now. <laughs> well, I, I, gee, I, I, you know, I mean, big ears, small minds. <laughs> well, it's it's just like uh, it's not their fault um, because uh, things have been set up in a way the publicity machinery was not uh, set up 
to prevent people from hearing and being excited by free jazz in the 60s. When it first appeared, it was like uh, there was a big festival in 62, I think it was, uh, uh, right next door to Columbia University. And all these kids are going to hear this weird stuff. I mean, there was nothing telling them that this wasn't this wasn't real. I mean, they heard about it and they went. Mm -hmm. uh, so the gates were not uh, the, the 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 culture was not organized at that time in a, such a way as to say um, these people have already been approved. They mm -hmm. were not approved, and it took a while for the institutions to figure out what to do about it. Um, you know, and this is part of what I write in uh, the Free Musics, for instance, how um, classic jazz came about uh, and to organize the audience for um, uh, an acceptable music. And then about eight years or nine years later, uh, there was a free jazz establishment that was, oh, well, the people who are left out of the classic jazz uh, taste, you can go over to this other tent over here, it's a little smaller tent, and you will feel gratified uh, that um, free jazz is still alive. And of course, as we know, free jazz is still alive uh, now, um, uh, 35 years later, uh, doing the exact same thing that it was before, because the audience has been organized to go to that tent um, and mostly older older people who want to feel like uh, the real stuff was back then and we're still hearing it. We're we still young musicians are still going there. Uh, so that is um, that is uh, bureaucratic organization. It involves getting all the critics, you know, waiting for the generation of the older critics who are stimulating people to go to this weird stuff have them, you know, um, what's the term, <clears throat> phased out over time uh, mm -hmm. and bring in a new crew that knows what the new rules are. And those rules are what the, are what the bureaucratic mind sets up. The rules are the only criticism you will hear of music is um, uh, uh, positive. You know, in other words, everything is going to be promotional. Now, the interesting thing is all this criticism coming out, this woke criticism uh, that is attacking all, basically all classical music as being, uh, you know, uh, whatever, you know, racist, homophobic, uh, uh, sexist, uh, because these these uh, composers were grew up in an area that was like that. And so, well... Um, this is um, this is another aspect of what is happening now, which is that bureaucracy um, cannot tolerate. Uh, I mean, the, the cannot tolerate the aesthetic sensibility, um, and so it, it is doing all it can. It recognizes that as the enemy. That is uh, aesthetic sen sensibility. By that I mean uh, the the Kantian. Uh, subject who goes into an art gallery and sees a painting and says, wow, I'm 
you know, like, I don't know what to do with this, or I'm, this is making me think, or, you know, the mind it has a certain freedom uh, mm -hmm. to react to this. Uh, and it's not the mind that is, that is uh, analyzing it in terms of uh, history or the intention of the artist, uh, the, uh, or the morality of the artist or anything, or the effect that this painting will have on other people. It is just like me and that painting. You walk into mm -hmm. a gallery and boom, you are hit with something. Um, mm -hmm. And um, my reference point for this was uh, in uh, the summer of uh, the summer of '64. Uh, I I was uh, in love with the woman that I was going to marry, and uh, my parents said, "Well, it'd be good for you to get away, and uh, you know, before you." jump into this so that I was, they sent me off to California and I went to it. Uh, while I was there, I, I just, um, walked into, um, an art museum and saw a, uh, uh, an exhibit of, uh, Pollock's paintings. Now Pollock was long dead. Uh, and this was a retrospective, but I went like, wow, what's going on here? And it was, uh, it was a, a shock that, just you know resonated uh with me so that was aesthetic sensibility which is vulnerable and which is unable out of unable to control itself your rational uh mind cannot tell you what to think about it so uh this was let loose in the 60s um with the explosion of interest in art and in free jazz and uh, political thinking and all kinds of thinking, utopian thinking of how we're going to reshape the world, all this stuff um, just exploded. And it was it in the midst of the Vietnam War, it just uh, it, it was like the Vietnam War and opposition to it, which was growing at the same time that this this expansion, expansion of consciousness. Uh, was happening. This is something that um, it, it killed off the the framework of uh, the, the old guard of the institutions. Uh, they were unable to deal with this. Johnson had to had to quit, and uh, universities had to readjust. How are we going to deal with this situation? Every institution. Um, the welfare institution. We were running this nice welfare state, and all of a sudden, we got this more problems than we can handle. So um, so the institutions that were built after that, the bureaucracies were not simply normally, you know, like expand and expand and, and grow. They, 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 they were intuitively oriented towards um, preventing this from happening. And at the core of that um, is the possibility that this free aesthetic, aesthetic sensibility, which is, you know, free to roam and free to question at the same time, uh, to question everything, um, would join up with a political sensibility, and that would be the end. I mean, you, we, you know, like anything you can do to stop that from happening, mm -hmm. and so you have to prevent people from getting. Uh, the sense that they can 
walk into a, a show, a music show or an art show and feel like they don't know what's going on because that feeling will be attractive. That will draw them. They'll want to know more how what happens here. But to change the subjectivity in such a way that that is blocked out, that is um, uh, that's 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 what has happened. You cannot well, speak. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say, uh, you know, speaking of um, unofficial characters and uh, uh, we've got a guest caller on the line here. Uh, his name's Carl and he has a, a burning question here coming out strictly unofficial um, and uh, a true chud, true man of the streets here, man of the people. Yeah, thank you, Evan. And uh, hi, Jack. Uh, a question that I had was um, if, say, um, the uh, institutions slash uh, power structures uh, do over time gradually subsume various aesthetic sensibilities uh, and legitimize them, do you think that there is any, uh, is there any sense in which that power structure slash um, institutional complex uh, becomes changed by subsuming those aesthetics in its character or, or in its uh, political sensibility uh, and that this is just an ongoing process uh, or is it merely uh, a simulacrum, mere, merely the wolf uh, adopting a new skin? Um, well, my my answer to that is that uh, uh, you can't keep a good man down uh, or you can't keep the aesthetic sensibility. Um, it, it's, it's just like this is part of the human spirit. And especially, especially in modern, in, in modernity. The thing about modernity is that it has unleashed the the weapons against itself. It is it is divided against itself. It has produced this, you know, like you wouldn't imagine, um, you know, like peasants would maybe uh, observe a tree and, and have this experience from a tree, but there was no way for them to connect with other peasants who were doing the same and then maybe think, well, maybe we could make a drawing of this. Maybe we could, you know, uh, under modernity, freedom became uh, free for the taking, um, just as equality did. The sense that we are all um, we are all human beings. Everybody talking to each other. We're all human beings. On that level, we are we are uh, um, uh, we are the same. And uh, this this new idea unleashed, ultimately, uh, as I say, uh, it it comes from a kind of comes underground through Christianity and through the Middle Ages and so on. But uh, um, this, um, the more you push this thing down, the more you try and close it up, the more it's going to just pop up elsewhere. And the problem is uh, it can pop up in ways that are um, really very destructive. So uh, what we're doing in playing music and you know we are making it available we're doing about what we can for those who become ready 
for that kind of uh, freedom, who are not afraid of uh, where it can go and uh, can orient it towards, um, you know, a greater, a greater social freedom. I feel like uh, um, we're, we're working on the next, uh, the next generation of um, aesthetic uh, sensibility. Uh, we are, uh, um, uh, we are what the avant-garde of modernist period, modernist times, uh, we're doing in a more organized way, in a way that uh, was um, only recognized in the in the 60s, uh, but it was recognized as something that is done and over, you know, we're through with that now. Um, so that's what postmodernity is uh, a, a, an attempt to bury uh, the aesthetic uh, sensibility. Um, and um, it's just like, um, you just, you just can't do that. I mean, you, it, it won't last. I'm uh, confident of that. Just like everybody three years ago in the summer of 22, people were saying, oh man, we can't get out from under this. And now there's all kinds of holes, all kinds of, you know, new thinking that has been going on, which I've been trying to keep up with, but it's just, you know, incredible the kind of imagination that people uh, you can you pick through a lot of these uh, 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 substacks, and uh, some of them are are just uh, uh, examples of this kind of freedom to think. Yeah, thanks for your question, Carl. I appreciate you calling. Um, at the end of the book, you propose an open-ended question asking, how is it that the culture has gone from the enjoyment of freedom to the enjoyment of fear and hatred? Uh, since publishing the book, do you feel like you've come any closer to precisely answering this question? Um, well, it's the, um, as I said before, we're only asking questions. We're not uh, about uh, pro providing answers. <laughs> That's a good excuse, isn't it? Can't, yeah, <laughs> worming your way right out of that one. <laughs> but uh, no, not coming closer to an answer, but articulating the question uh, more, just uh, digging digging deeper into it. Um, I mean, it was just just yesterday that uh, I came across this academic in. Um, uh, Manhattan College in uh, Brooklyn, uh, actually a place where I taught a summer course in uh, 60, 67, I think. Um, and he is he just outlines all the work that has been done on the evolution of uh, the therapeutic uh, society and all of the parts of how this has come together together with uh, Neo, his, his point is especially how it has worked very well for neoliberalism. Um, so um, uh, this, I find more exciting stuff all the day, all the time. And uh, sometimes I feel like, uh, uh, how can I possibly do anything um, called uh, processing? <laughs> To use a therapeutic word, by the way, uh, to process 
um, this. Uh, but um, uh, I find that when I'm writing and in a topic, I am coming up with things that uh, um, don't seem to appear to uh, uh, to the academic mind. Um, and a lot of that has to do with the, the fact that um, of my, uh, the, the, one of the layers of my rejection of academia when I was engaged in it in graduate school, especially going from uh, college to graduate school, uh, was that uh, there was just no, uh, there was a complete spit, uh, split between objectivity and subjectivity. We were just, you know, uh, we, we didn't exist as human beings, as historians. We weren't supposed to be motivated. And so uh, in the early part of uh, Shaky Ground, I go into, I try to understand what that subjectivity is. What is the subjectivity of the scholar? And um, uh, I read tons of academic stuff and trying to um, extract uh, uh, something meaningful uh, from it um, is very difficult because it is still, you know, like the way to defend things academically. I'm not talking about the woke people. There are plenty, of, there are tons of people who are doing great work that is not, that is traditional scholarship, but uh, the way to validate what they are doing is to put it in a certain way that is exactly what, uh, what I didn't like about academia, uh, whatever that is, 60 years ago. Um, this this um, pretense that I am just motivated by a search for truth, and so uh, a lot of a lot of what I'm doing, a lot of my work is um, looking at motivation, and it's interesting because I came across one of the one of the scholars I was reading uh, uh, was talking about motivational research, and you probably know what this is. It's uh, it started actually in the 60s, I think, maybe earlier. Um, but it was uh, uh, the effort of uh, corporations that are selling consumer products to find out um, what would motivate consumers to, to buy. So this is part of the therapeutic uh, ethos, uh, which is very evident in that uh, series, uh, Mad Men which is really uh, having lived in that era um, and uh, my, my wife uh, was working in, <laughs> in a advertising agency in the late 60s and knows very well how things were, what, they, what was going on. She said, yeah, this is, this is how it was. Um, mm -hmm. uh, motivational research is what I'm doing. So, uh, uh, I'm working with the same tools, in a sense, uh, but with a different uh, uh, with a different direction or researching uh, for a different uh, purpose. 
but it is motivational. Yeah, it's amusing how this uh, coming from this rejection of academia, which seems crystal clear to me, especially given your history uh, of officially rejecting it, that uh, through your writing, sometimes you'll be tagged as as being overly academic. Um, like it's almost like any anything um, that intellectually questions uh, the social order is just thrown thrown into that heap. Even though that's that's sort of like precisely what where it's coming from and what motivates it. I mean, I, I, there's like a line I, I really like uh, what you said in the book about um, coming from. Uh, the background of like intellectual Marxism, where he said, uh, for Marxism that requires political practice led by theory and corrected by practice, a back and forth relation. But for academia, radicalism practice was to be determined by theory in a one-way relationship. No need for a strategy since believing and expressing the theory was the practice. Um, but it's like, uh, I mean, that's a little different from what I'm talking about, but it's like people uh, can't seem to distinguish. Uh, like it's, it's, it's sort of just, uh, they're, they're supporting this academic effort without not knowing it uh, and thinking that they're opposed to it. Uh, but then kind of tagging you for, for being in, in this camp, which you're clearly <laughs> uh, in opposition to. Right. I mean, I've seen this. I've had this myself as well. Uh huh. Yeah. Anytime you do any any kind of uh, analysis, um, it gets tagged out. There's no way, really, no way around it. Very few, you know, like our music. You know, like very few people are going to be interested in it, and are going to feel like uh, that is anything that would uh, excite them. Um, mm -hmm. So. Uh, but I've noticed that just like the uh, like in the '80s uh, when I was started out doing uh, music, I was going up to New York uh, every every weekend pretty much. And uh, in the back of my mind, I thought that I was going to uh, make it as a successful musician. And <clears throat> at that time. Uh, it was, there was no really firm line between people who were just coming into music without any music background, without any uh, um, uh, music school background, those people and the people who did have that music school background. There was no line separating us. There was what I call a middle tier. There was a lower tier of people who didn't really care about playing with, quote, better musicians or more trained musicians. And there was an upper tier of trained musicians and successful musicians. And uh, there were people from that upper tier who were uh, interested in people from the lower tier, and that created a kind of middle ground. So I was able to play with people um, um, that, uh, I, I, you know, call up uh, William Parker, do you want to get together and play? He was mm -hmm. uh, the only one, the, the only person who was in that upper tier, even though he was not 
you know, that well known at the time, uh, who was interested in playing. And it really was important to me because it, it the way he played just really forced me to play and to play a lot. And it was much better than many of the partners that I played with who, you know, uh, didn't push me in any way. So that was valuable. Then I went to Europe and played with a bunch of uh, German uh, musicians in the free music production uh, who were professionals. And um, some were very aware of this, you know, that, well, you keep your playing with non-professionals uh, kind of limited or out of the public eye. <laughs> but that was fine. They were still playing. And that was a great yeah. thing. Uh, so as time went on, um, this middle peer, this middle tier disappeared. And uh, so in, in the relation to academia and uh, what are called the public intellectuals. So in the, in the fifties, there was that middle tier, the public intellectuals were able to make a living by publishing their stuff because there was a, uh, uh, an audience, especially in the fifties, hungry for nonfiction critical stuff. You know, people reading Vance Packard's uh, books on uh, criticizing the advertising industry. There was there was a lot of this stuff. They were they were able to do it, and then there were some would uh, see that well, that's a pretty insecure existence. So they were able to get into academia even without PhDs. So mm -hmm. uh, gradually, this process edged the, you know, and uh, changes in the in the reading audience uh, followed suit. Uh, these these became uh, the the lower tier. This public intellectuals, which had been the top people uh, that the world was paying to paying attention to, they just stopped. They just could not continue. The publishing industry changed, and uh, if you know, uh, uh, if you wanted to do intellectual work, of course you went to school. And it was the same in the music world. When I said, uh, uh, I remember there's this woman uh, musician, and I said, well, I'm, you know, um, I'm going to do it. I'm going to New York and I'm playing for people, and they're going to like it, and and that's it's going to happen. She said, no, 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 you don't understand. You have to go to music school. I said, no, no, that's the old way. That's the way it used to be. You don't have to mm -hmm. do that anymore. So uh, here we are today where um, we still have this line between, um, you know, like a world has been created for Substack people, but uh, uh, Substack writers, but they're they're advertising and they're writing to make a living. They're trying to make a living doing it. So they're sort of in that realm. If you are not working towards building your audience, um, like as we are, you know, not trying to do <laughs> playing free music, uh, and as I'm doing writing books that nobody's going to read, uh, <laughs> you know, we're we're outside of the, the marketplace and there is no uh, middle tier where we would be of interest to, um, well, we might be of interest to some of the Substack people, 
but not to academics. I mean, I have I have written to people and gotten responses of, well, that's, you know, sort of like, that's great what you're doing, keep doing it. <laughs> but no interaction because, and it makes sense because there's no point in an academic person showing any interest in somebody who is not credentialed. Mm -hmm. What, why would they ever do that? It would be detrimental. You start getting engaged with these ideas that are coming from outside, you're going to have to credit them. And you're mm -hmm. crediting people who other people are going to say, well, you're crediting somebody who's not one of us, basically, you know, and you're not going to get anywhere. This is going to hurt your career right? Um, to engage with them. So this is, um, you know, this is a uh, substantial division and a grand success for the institutions that have set this up. And they, and right. again, they didn't set this up because they thought, hmm, this is how to do it. They set it up because it was just instinctual. We've got to get rid of these people. We've got to get rid of people who are playing freely and enticing uh, others to do the same. And we've got to get rid of people who are not part of the market or the academic credentialing uh, system. And, um, well, I don't have any answer. I mean, to uh, uh, Carl, uh, who the questioner before the telephone question, uh, uh, I, I don't really um, see that there's much we can do. We're kind of attendant on events. Um, and uh, if something really, if some crisis really uh, um, uh, harms these institutions in a serious way, like an economic crisis, um, mm -hmm. and, and, and they can only say, because they're all together, they're all, you know, aligned with each other, the same ideology, the same, you know, they, they, they win together, they die together. Um, uh, and they're hurt at the same time by anything that happens to any of them. Uh, so uh, that's their strength and also their weakness. So if, uh, or when uh, the next economic crisis occurs, the next 2008 comes along, um, we're gonna be in a little different uh, situation and uh, people might be looking uh, under the covers. And in fact, mm -hmm. publishers might be looking, you know, like maybe we have a market for something that is outside of the market up until now. So, you know, we are, we're powerless, uh, but mm -hmm. we still, uh, that doesn't mean we don't enjoy what we're doing probably more than most people. <laughs> is how I, when I look around, you know, I can't yeah. imagine having the life of an academic and, you know, but that's the problem of uh, any more than I can imagine uh, uh, trying to have a music career. I mean, the kind of rules, the rules are piling up. Yeah, and who you can play with and who you can't play with. It's the same thing with the academic response. It's like, oh, well, <laughs> that guy's problematic. That might hurt your possibility of playing with these people or getting this gig or that gig or whatever. Um, so it's, yeah, just more fear. That's something I just thought of as we're, um, Jack, as you're discussing um, academia. Uh, is 
do you have any opinions or has it came across your desk of it's it's really interesting to me that the right wing um you have a whole section of the right wing that um in earnest like uh speaks of how going to college is a scam you shouldn't do this or this may only um be prominent in the internet online like niche communities where people say don't go to college college is a meme um but then on the other hand they are starting institutions like prager u or jordan peterson starting ralston college to where they seem to have some or also they elevate any academic voice um which are in the minority that support their ideals uh, just i I don't. I just was curious if you had any thoughts on why there is that attraction to the to an institution, or like the old guard. Uh, we we still. It seems like society still needs um, the ivory tower, even though in reality you can learn it all on the computer, right? You don't. You we don't have to look to these institutions for guidance or. Um, you know the library we, we don't need to physically go to a library anymore you can find more as you on substack um and probably get more true diversity of thought there um but I, i'm just curious if you had any thoughts of why there's the attraction to the idea of the the, the institution of academia well uh the first thing you were talking about was uh, about the right and the right is simply envious of the left and uh so uh, they want their own institutions, and uh, uh, they aren't really about uh, a critique of the institutions that would uh, transform them. And uh, like uh, the whole notion of a change in the social order means that we still have institutions. In fact, we have, still have bureaucra bureaucracies, um, but uh, but they are simply organized differently and they are more responsive to the needs as people express them. Uh, and that isn't what, you know, uh, I am not, uh, in any way on the right, but I, uh, I find many people who are on the right, uh, that I previously would not even give another look to, um, have, uh, really uh, some stimulating ideas and anybody, people who are accused of being on the right uh, are um, uh, really very interesting. As opposed, as for uh, institutions, um, uh, as I say, I think uh, uh, I want them to operate uh, differently, but this is never going to, we're, we're not going to go back to a simple uh, organization of society in the world. This is, um, it's going to be complex and we're going to need people who uh, um, uh, study how things work and, and uh, uh, are equipped and paid uh, and supported to, um, to do the work of, of uh, social organization. Uh, it's just that um, these institutions need to be uh, shaken up. And um, uh, this is something I didn't say before that, that uh, you, you bring up in, to mind, which is uh, uh, one reason not to uh, feel like 
uh, the, uh, the the vast majority of of uh, the woke uh, professional class is the enemy. The reason is that we we need educated people um, to. Um, I don't want to do. I might not want to do that work, but uh, other people who do want to be. We need you know doctors. We need lawyers. But we need doctors who are operating differently than they are today, um, who are, you know, doctors are part of, are just uh, part of a bureaucracy and they are exploited. Their work and their expertise is exploited. So uh, they need to uh, feel that sense and feel, you know, begin to recognize that their sense of duty uh, is just being taken advantage of. Um, so that answers anything. Yeah, it does. It gets worrying even exploring certain thoughts because if you aren't marching to that beat publicly, um, they're not going to let you in. Right. Self-censorship is occurring ubiquitously in all kinds of ways, mostly, as Jack noted, like unconsciously. But yeah, I think increasingly those fears are just ramped up uh, as a means of control. Yeah. Completely. Well, I think uh, one of the things that has uh, opened up on the the current left very strongly, um, maybe what it's called the extreme current left, but also in uh, among um, I don't know among uh, some of the Bronze Age pervert people, the BAP yeah. people. Uh, is <laughs> hilarious just to hear you yeah, mention that. Name, by the way. <laughs> is 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 an attraction to is a feeling that uh, um, the alternative to the present situation is is anarchy, and uh, so very few people are are willing to say no. Uh, we are uh, we want a society that is peaceful and that is. Uh, um, where people are obedient to the law and uh, uh, but and and uh, uh, we want order and not anarchy uh, but it's an order that would be um, uh, far different from the one that exists now but this is the problem of reading a lot of left uh, dissidents is that um, their their tendency is, is to abandon uh, because because social justice the term social justice has been captured by uh, this uh, cult uh, they sort of forget that that's what the left is really about the social justice and it applies to ourselves as well as we you know uh, white males uh, especially uh, are being attacked. Um, we have a reason to feel that injustice is being done to us. And uh, so uh, social justice is a term of order, of wanting order in society. The order is justice. And uh, as somebody uh, training in the law, uh, there is really uh, shouldn't be any um, uh, uh, question um, about uh, that the particular order in a democracy is one 
which um, uh, permits uh, what appears to be disorder, but actually is the process of people uh, making up their minds uh, and thinking things through. And to call that disorder, to say uh, it would be better to have no order is really uh, a big mistake. Yeah, throwing the uh, baby out with the bathwater. Right. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think, yeah, there's sp specific ways you can look to see how the effort of anarchism and the um, the liberal order uh, work in lockstep. I mean, you mentioned this book really taking a direction uh, during the Floyd demonstrations and riots um, where it became really clear that um, uh, uh, anarchism and and what is called you know the, the current left um, were kind of functioning in lockstep to keep this like perpetual horizon going, and it's like oh yeah well burn down all the institutions but then replace them with nothing. Well, the problem is uh, people have in their mind a uh, the the spectrum, uh, and I've I've gone into this in current writing uh, how attractive it is to have in your mind um, a uh, a place where you are on the spectrum and knowing that you will have friends there and so on, and the attraction is a visual. Uh, you know, a horizontal line with the vertical in the middle, and you're on one side or the other. Uh, so this is this is uh, so attractive that uh, you know that you to, that it's dangerous to step over that line, um, and uh, it's like that is the threat of disorder right there, um, mm -hmm. and uh, so that means that. If you are, uh, you can't go back and forth in your opinions. That is your home. You know, you you are here and you can't be somewhere else. Mm -hmm. It's dangerous to be anywhere else. So uh, you believe in this, but not that and so on. Uh, so uh, here you are in this position, like when the George Floyd thing happened, my first reaction was, uh, well, the demonstrations are, you know, just in line with everything the left has done before demonstrations against police brutality. And that's what it was. And uh, so then I saw Antifa as uh, something um, that was uh, typical of things that happen to um, people who are for social justice. And then a group comes in and um, uh, very often the government uh, plants uh, um, uh, agents in these rad more radical groups that urge towards uh, violence and rioting and so on, so as to um, bring the blame down on uh, on the peaceful demonstrators. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I was understanding this from the past because I knew that, for instance, Weatherman was the organization that I had to I was opposed to and had to deal with in Philadelphia in the late '60s. Uh, they they were they were full of agents and uh, 
it's always hard to tell, you know, is a group uh, going, uh, going in a certain direction because the agents are in charge, like that case in Michigan. Um, yeah, the weathermen later got academic careers. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, at any rate, that was my opinion, and I got uh, criticized for that. Then I went to this big demonstration, and I was there uh, with my fist up, yeah, no justice, no peace. I was, I was persuaded uh, that this was a good thing. And then I looked at it um, uh, still further. I thought, well, there, wait a minute, there's, there's something wrong. You know, like these, the Antifa was in the front of the line, like, they're the, like it's their march. <laughs> and, uh, you know, do people really accept this? Do they really, is that really what they're, what they're thinking? Are they, are they just sheep? And uh, so that started me uh, uh, thinking, digging further into this. Uh, so the possibility of uh, reading things and supporting things that are on the other side of the lines that are, that you have made for yourself uh, to be comfortable um, that is, um, well, that's an aspect of freedom. So, yeah, I mean, you can do it. <laughs> you can do it, yeah. but, you know, today you're a lot more, you're pretty vulnerable if you do. Yeah, in what ways would you say your thinking fundamentally shifted since you began the project of writing Shaky Ground, specifically your encounters with some of these um, conservative thinkers that you didn't permit yourself to read previously? Uh, well, one was my realization that, uh, I, there was a conservative strain in me, as I said earlier, all along in, uh, attractions when I was in, uh, college, um, I was certainly a cultural conservative, um, which is very strange that I ended up doing free music, which is not considered culturally conservative. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, I was brought up with uh, classical music, and I was reading, uh, I wasn't even reading modernist uh, stuff. That was too far out for me to read Joyce. Uh, took me, I, wasn't, I didn't read uh, Ulysses until I was 50. And that was because my son read it and liked it. And so I said, well, if he can read it, then maybe I can. And then I loved it, you know, but it was, it was too far out. I was you know, uh, uh, brought up in, in a college where uh, um, Matthew Arnold, the 19th century British uh, guy who introduced, maybe he didn't popularize the idea of Philistines. We're going to, we need to educate the Philistines in culture, culture with a capital C. Uh, I was brought up with that. History of English literature, Shakespeare, all of this stuff. Um, that um, that I valued and that, you know, Dostoevsky uh, was a big, uh, big hit with me. Uh, so this this was all from the new perspective, from the postmodern perspective. This was old fashioned um, and uh, you're thrown in the box with people who want to um, uh, do things that, you know, who are thinking that that traditional literature is to teach us values, and I never really thought that at all. So um, this uh, other things where I felt like um, 
uh, felt uh, critical of modernism, critical of modernization, um, was a side was something I wasn't getting from Marxism, and uh, so I began to look back into these things that I had uh, pushed aside and felt uh, there was uh, some value to them. Now reading uh, some of the sociology that I felt that I called at the time bourgeois sociology uh, and structuralism, which came before post-structuralism, which was, you know, analysis uh, of society. I'm finding something worthwhile in that. So um, that is uh, maybe a, a change in my um, my patterns. But as I say, it's very difficult because uh, I've got, uh, since I started, uh, since the, um, uh, since the pandemic, uh, I started downloading uh, books because I couldn't get into the libraries. And I've, I've just got so much stuff that I'll never read. <laughs> and I go through it and think, you know, uh, I would just like all this uh, stuff um, summarized, uh, but I would have to do the summarizing from <laughs> my point of view. So uh, um, I could feel uh, very insecure about it. And for some reason, I don't. Yeah, well, that wired brain should be coming down the pike any minute. So you can just plug right in, buddy, and get it all. Well, perhaps we should conclude here before the the, uh, the powers that be uh, Cut us start off. Charge, charging us the big bucks here with two minutes remaining right down to the line. Okay, but, uh, for your last comment, uh, what is your next project? Yeah, Jack, what do you got to plug? <laughs> plug away. <laughs> Give me some hair plugs. How about uh, one up the ass too? Um, well, yeah, no, this is this has been fabulous. Uh, and thanks so much for joining us here on the the Exile Hour, and, and sir, may you forever remain in exile and love it. <laughs> Thank you, Jack. Internal, it's it's called internal exile. <laughs> okay, thank you very much. It was uh, it was great. I'm, I mean, uh, all my ideas are sorted out now, and I can. I can go in peace. Peace be with you too, and with your spirit. Nook Demidus. God bless. <laughs>